This is uh, technically session five of the School of Ministry, even though we had a few workshops in between there. And we're looking at the Trinity uh, in your, um, what I've been calling discipleship packets, your homework packets. Um, if you could work on the Trinity chapter this week. And I meant to work my way up to my bedroom tonight to grab the packet so I could tell you what chapter that's on, uh, but never made it that far. <laughs> but, um, and then uh, we're going to be looking at, uh, in the weeks to come, Jesus, we'll be looking at the Holy Spirit, we'll be looking at God the Father, we may do God the Father last because then we'll go into uh, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, how God created man to be in his image, and so we'll kind of look at the attributes of God there. But uh, the attributes of God actually will carry, they carry over to the whole Trinity. All the attributes of God go toward, you know, towards the Holy Spirit, towards the Son, towards the Father. So, um, but tonight, just trying to take it piece by piece, maybe in the wrong order a little bit, but. Oh, is it just God? Okay. Okay. That must be it. Lesson one. Okay. Sure. God. This is a few weeks of just God. Okay. A man writes, while our friends from India traveled around California on business, they left their 11-year-old daughter with us. Curious about my going to church one Sunday morning, she decided to come along. When we returned home, my husband asked her what she thought of the service. I don't understand, understand why the West Coast isn't included too, she replied. When we inquired what she meant, she added, you know, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the whole East Coast. <laughs> The Trinity of God, Jason's like, why did we move here? I'm wondering why we moved here. The whole East Coast, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost. Okay. Kids say the darndest. Kids say the darndest things. The Trinity of God is a doctrine that is fundamental or foundational to the Christian faith. Belief or disbelief in the Trinity marks truth from lie. Is there an extra packet around that I could have? Okay, cool. Just want to make sure. That... Bam, okay. It's already underlined in yours, but maybe you would get your colored pencil or something and just highlight that. Belief or disbelief in the Trinity marks truth from lie. Christians and non Share intriguing, deep longings, love, relationships, communication, peace, unity. We have these because we've been made in the image and likeness of God. No people can rise above their concept of God. If we have a faulty view of God, we suffer. In fact, Lindsay was just talking about that with her core group. as She shared with our group tonight, yesterday, that uh, whenever we sin, it shows there's an error in our theology. There's an error in our understanding of who God is, because who God is, because everything we do is connected to our understanding of God's nature. Who is my God? Who do I believe? Who or what do I worship? Augustine said, "If you deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. If you try to explain the Trinity, you'll lose your mind." Our finite human brain and reason cannot fathom the Trinity, nor can logic explain it. Cute little illustrations like an egg having three parts, a, a shell, an egg white, or a yolk, or water having three forms, or uh, many have used uh, a tree with its branches and roots and, and, and core, or whatever they would call it. Uh, all of these little illustrations are, they're insufficient. And not only do they hardly scratch the surface of the Trinity, but they can actually cause misunderstanding of the Trinity. They're good for an elementary uh, explanation. But the word Trinity is not in the Bible. You might be surprised to hear that. But neither is the word rapture. Or even the word Bible isn't in the Bible. 
but the concepts are all there. The doctrine of the Trinity is plainly taught in Scripture. Trinity, the word was first used by Tertullian in 155 AD. The word summarizes the totality of who God is. Because of all the false doctrines that have gone around, the early church was forced to study the Trinity and to affirm its truth. The term Trinity is not the best term because it emphasizes three persons, but not the unity within the Trinity. That should be your first blank of the evening. From Moody's Handbook of Theology, a proper definition of the Trinity must include the distinctness and equality of the three persons. A proper definition of the Trinity must include the distinctness, and that just means different, okay? And the equality of the three persons within the Trinity, as well as unity within the Trinity. The Trinity is composed of three united persons without separate existence. So completely united as to form one God, the divine nature subsists in three distinctions, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Reading Wayne Grudem's uh, systematic theology today, and I didn't get a chance to enter any of it into my notes, so occasionally I'm going to reference right out of the book. He defines it, we may define the doctrine of the Trinity as follows, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Triunity may better express this doctrine. Triunity may better express this doctrine. The Trinity is one God, which is monotheism, who eternally exists as three distinct persons who think, speak, feel, and act. Three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit, are all fully equally God. All are all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. Monotheism, we see that taught plainly in the scriptures. Uh, let's look at the second verse down, Deuteronomy 32, 39. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. Or Psalm 86.10, you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Isaiah 43.10, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. In New Testament, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Or 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Well, the question, what about other religions who believe in other gods? John 17.3, Jesus says he's the only true God. There are many false gods, as we know from Acts 17. We've read that recently. Other religions, what are they worshiping? We've studied this also in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 recently, that these other religions, what they're worshiping is demonic. Behind it is demonism. Powerful spirit beings, fallen angels in league with Satan, masquerading as angels of light, performing signs and wonders, making statues sweat and bleed and tremble and... Marys appear on French toast as they're grilling in the griddle, whatever it might be. Uh, it's demonic behind it. We're not to be just spiritual individuals, but Christians. Moving along, let's look at some of the misinterpretations of the Trinity. Tritheism is a misinterpretation of the Trinity. And, and it's easy to, to get there. It's easy, we get confused. All right? We're not talking about three different gods, all right, as we discuss the Trinity. Talking about one God who subsists in three persons, and each person is God, okay? Tritheism, 
in the early church history, men like John Escunges and John Fulpon, whatever you say, taught this. <laughs> I don't even know. There were three who were God, but they were only related in loose association. Like Peter and John and James were all disciples. The problem with this is that this idea abandons the unity within the Trinity. It taught that there were three gods rather than three persons within one Godhead. So tritheism is not what we're talking about here. Um, the next one is Sibeliism or modalism. Uh, M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M, like modalism. No, wait, that wouldn't be right, would it? It's not how you spell model. That's how I spell model. Um, so modalism taught by Sibelius, uh, circa 280. There, there's actually some slight differences between Sibeliism or modalism. But uh, this teaching was just about the opposite of tritheism. Sibelius spoke of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but understood the three as simply three forms of existence or three manifestations of one God. This teaching, also known as modalism, because God basically appears in three modes. Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. And I want you to just be thinking about how would that not be biblical? And what would the problems with modalism be as we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in the scriptures? Um, God puts on a mask and plays a role, essentially, in modalism. In the Old Testament, he acts like the Father. In the book of Acts, he acts like the Holy Spirit. In the Gospels, he acts like the Son, uh, the problem is, at Jesus' baptism, he would be playing all three roles at one time. The United Pentecostal Church uh, claims to be a Christian church, but they are modalistic in their beliefs. They believe that God appears in three different, uh, with three different masks on. Um, let me read out of Grudem's book here of uh, Systematic Theology. The fatal shortcoming of modalism is the fact that it must deny the personal relationships within the Trinity that appear in so many places in Scripture, or it must affirm that these were simply an illusion and not real. Thus, it must deny three separate persons at the baptism of Jesus, where the Father speaks from heaven and the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and it must say that all those instances where Jesus is praying to the Father are an illusion or a charade. Finally, modalism ultimately loses the heart of the doctrine of the atonement. That is the idea that God sent his son as a substitutionary sacrifice and that the son bore the wrath of God in our place <clears throat> and that the father representing the interests of the Trinity saw the suffering of Christ and was satisfied. So modalism inadequate. Uh, thirdly, Arianism. Uh, Arianism was a teaching by Arius around 250 AD. It denied the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all equally God. This is uh, basically known as the Jehovah's Witnesses today. This teaching taught that the Son was subordinate to the Father and got carried further so that Jesus was subordinate to the Father even in essence. Okay, so uh, we're not talking authority we know that Jesus submitted to the authority of uh, the role of the Father, but this is speaking in his uh, essence, okay? Uh, this ultimately led to Arianism, which denied the deity of Christ. Arian taught that Jesus was begotten, therefore he was a created being, so there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. Arian and his, and his teachings were condemned at the Council of Nicaea, in AD 325. Uh, this is relevant for us today. A popular book that came out a few years ago that uh, many Christians just devoured, maybe even some of you in this room, it's called The Shack, okay? It's a book that Christians just went nuts over. A book about the Trinity. Uh, you think you understand the Trinity by reading The Shack? It is not a good example of a way to get your theological basis, all right? You've got a guy named Mac who gets a message to meet God at the shack. And the book is about Mac at the shack. <laughs> a Mac attack. No, I don't know. Okay. 
and the conversations that Mac has with God. Uh, in this book, the Father, God the Father, is shown to be an African-American woman named Papa. Jesus is a Jewish-looking gardener. And the Holy Spirit is Saranyu, an Asian woman. Okay? If that's where you're getting your understanding of the Trinity, uh, you're going to be off base. Number one, we're not to make a graven image of the invisible God. And God is spirit and doesn't have these physical bodies. The Puritans understood this, <clears throat> that to make a, a picture of God, i.e. as an old man, would be an issue. God is not a man. God the Son became a man. Secondly, there's goddish, goddess worship happening here. If God the Father is God the Mother, it changes everything. You would say that God is not uh, anatomically structured like a man, but he revealed himself to us as a father. So to worship him as a mother is not to worship him in truth. <clears throat> this is a form of modalism. Papa says, I am truly human in Jesus. All right, so if you remember, Jesus was the carpenter, the Jewish carpenter uh, at the shack. So uh, you have modalism there. I'm, I'm truly human in Jesus, Papa said, uh, but the Father did not become human and die on the cross. The Trinity says that they are distinctly different. And Christians so often lack discernment to see this as a problem, and they sell it to the multitudes. And you get popular Christian singers that put their stamp on the book and say, this just revolutionized my understanding of who God is. And the reason I camp on it is because I've just seen people get sucked away by these things. And especially you all who are going to be uh, serving in this body and, and teaching the children and, uh, you know, being part of the discipleship process in this church. We want to know truth from error and have discernment, knowing what is right. Um, there's these deep, passionate longings that cannot be set apart, apart from the Trinity in our hearts. And so uh, if we're worshiping anything other than truth, it's demonic. Biblical evidence that we see in the Bible uh, for the Trinity uh, first of all, it's found in the Old Testament, the progressive nature of the Old Testament evidence. And uh, number one, we have the plurality of God seen in the Old Testament. The plurality of God is seen in the first verse of the Bible. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This name God is the Hebrew plural form called Elohim, Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. It's a plural form for God. This word speaks of the plurality of God, and it's used 2,300 times in the Old Testament. It's El, which is God, singular. Elohim is plural. Dr. Gary Brashears wrote of the Targum Neophyti of 200 BC. A Targum was an ancient Jewish translation and reading of the Old Testament. The Jewish scholars would translate the Old Testament and accept them as the Targum. It's 200 years before Jesus or the church, 500 years before the Council of Nicaea, where Christians declared the Trinity as doctrine. And it states this in the Targum. In the beginning, by the firstborn God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. That's how the, tar uh, the Targum uh, declares Genesis 1.1. Colossians 1.15-17 bears witness in showing that Jesus was part of the creation process. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. So great verse to have memorized, great passage to just go to and show that Jesus uh, was before the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth. Um, in my notes, it says there were Jews who were waiting for Messiah, who loved and studied the Bible 200 years before Jesus, who interpreted the opening line of the Bible to be Trinitarian, and that was in the Targum. It's just really exciting 
the rest of Genesis starts to make sense in light of the Targum. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so as you go on down to verse 27, so God created man in his own image. All right, so that makes no sense apart from the Trinity. In Genesis 3, it says, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now let he put, lest he put his hand out and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So we have that word us there, plural form in Genesis 3.22. And then in Genesis 11.7, at the destruction of the Tower of Babel, come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. These verses all allow later revelation of the Trinity to fit nicely with early revelation. Who is this us and the hour that we read of in these Genesis accounts? the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The second big thing that we have uh, here, apart from the plurality of God, is the distinctiveness of the persons within the Trinity. In Genesis 16, 7 through 13, we see that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. She, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? So there's this incredible passage where we see the Lord showing up as a messenger. Angel of the Lord means messenger. As a messenger, he shows up, and then we see that it's not just Gabriel or something like that. It's uh, uh, Christophany, uh, an appearance of the Lord in the Old Testament, probably Jesus showing up there, and uh, she calls him Lord. You are the God who sees. The appearance of the angel of Yahweh in each of his Old Testament appearances suggests further the mystery of the distinctiveness within deity. The title itself, Angel of Yahweh, or literally Messenger of Yahweh, suggests there is some distinctness, distinctiveness of this messenger and of Yahweh himself. However, in each context, there's clear evidence that this angel is indeed Yahweh himself. This is made clear by either the narrator who will use the term angel of Yahweh and Yahweh interchangeably, or by the response of the person who's visited by the angel. For example, Hagar speaks to the angel of Yahweh calling him El Roy because God, El, has allowed himself to be seen. This is difficult to understand apart from a Trinitarian uh, interpretation of this event. There's so much more Trinity in the Old Testament. Isaiah 6, 8 says, Also I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, or here am I, send me. And Isaiah 48, 16, at the last part of the verse, And the Lord God, and now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. And that word have is singular. So the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. The question is, who is writing this and who is me? Jewish scholars say it's Isaiah, but look at the context. Look at verses 12 through 16. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. 
Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. So whoever this is that's going to be sent was the first, was the last. His hand was creative hand. It laid the foundations of the earth and stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. All of you assemble yourselves and hear who among them has declared these things. The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure in Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I even I have spoken. Yes, I've called him. I brought him and his way will prosper. Come near to me. Verse 16 is big. Come near to me. Hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. All right, so this is hardly a description of Isaiah. Who is this? The Lord and his spirit have sent me. It's Jesus in the Old Testament. It's Jesus in the book of Isaiah. We see the Trinity there in Isaiah 48, 16. So you might mark that whole passage out and just have it ready for when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and mark this out or just remember this. The reference to two distinct divine people in connection with the Spirit anticipates the New Testament doctrine of the Trinity in a radical way. And yet the Bible does not teach polytheism. Not speaking of three separate gods. Isaiah 46.10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Or Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. Good verse to have out when the Mormons show up at the door. Or Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. I want to give you five fingers of biblical evidence. Five things that will hopefully help you Remember the Trinity, understand the Trinity. Uh, within the Trinity, there's, first of all, the unity of God. The unity of God. So we know there's one God. Um, at the end of 1 Corinthians 8, 4, there's no God but one, no other God but one. Or James two nineteen, you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. One of the strongest examples of the unity of God. So there's one God, but three persons united within that Godhead is in the Shema, which is what the Jews pray out every day. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? Uh, this translation stresses the numerical singularity of God, that he is one. Also translated, the Lord our God he is Lord alone, stresses the uniqueness of God more than just his singularity, uh, translations that are admiring to God. Now, is, this is like the only Hebrew that I know is the Shema. And it's uh, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echud. And the word Echud uh, is the word one that denotes a cluster of something. So it's one cluster, it's one plural, okay? Um, Numbers 13.23 refers to one cluster of grapes, while the other Hebrew word for one, yachar, denotes total singularity, your one son, Genesis 22, speaking of Isaiah. So the Trinity illustrates two truths. There is one God, and secondly, the Father, Son, and Spirit are God. Um, Grudem puts it uh, similarly, but he has three things. You might just write it down. Number one, God is three persons. Number two, each person is fully God. And number three, there is one God. So he kind of expounds upon that a little bit. Read that today. So the unity of God. There's one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are God. 
Secondly, of our five fingers of biblical evidence, the Father is God. So there's unity within the Trinity. The Father is God. John 6, 27 speaks to this. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. There's one God, the Father. There are fewer references that specifically denote the Father as God, probably because the metaphor of uh, Father being God was widely accepted. Everyone agrees the Father is God, even the heretics and the cults get that. Uh, In Paul's letter, Paul tends to distinguish the Father from the Son by using the word God for the Father and the word Lord or Kyrios uh, for the Son. Uh, Kyrios, Lord for the Son, means supremacy, supreme in authority, that is controller God, Lord, and Master. And when Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, he says that, that the Father has made him both Lord and Savior, or Christ and Kyrios. Uh, thirdly, so five fingers here, we've got the unity in the Trinity, the Father is God. It gets pretty easy at this point. <laughs> Father is God. The Son is God, and we'll look at the Son is God more in depth when we look at the incarnation and the deity of Jesus. When Jesus said, who do men say that I am? His disciples answered and said, some say you are John the Baptist, returned from the dead. Others say you are Elias or one of the old prophets. And Jesus answered and said, but whom do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, Thou art the Logos, existing in the Father as his rationality, and then by act of his will being generated in consideration of the various functions by which God is related to his creation, but only in the fact that Scripture speaks of a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit, each member of the Trinity being co-equal with every other member, and each acting inseparably with the interpreting every other member with only an economic subordination within God, but causing no division which would make the substance no longer simple." And Jesus answered saying, what? (laughs) Sorry, Trinity jokes. (laughs) It's hard to find them. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That wake you up, Lauren? Come on. No? (laughs) Okay. Uh, We'll look at this much more during the incarnation and looking at the deity of Jesus. John 1, 1 through 4 and 14, big for the Trinity. We're not even going to go over it tonight because of the sake of time. John 5.18, why did the Jews seek to kill Jesus? Because he was saying that God was his father, making him equal with God. Uh, There are three testimonies in this verse to Christ's deity. Jesus' own statement, the Jews' understanding of Jesus' claim, so they understood what he was saying, and John's interpretation of Jesus' claim. And so you'll witness to people and they'll say, Jesus never even claimed to be God. And it's like, you just got to read the Bible. And the book of John is, the theme is the deity of Jesus. That's, John says, that's why he wrote it in like chapter 20. Um, and so Jesus' statement, he says he's God. The Jews knew that that's what he was saying. So they were trying to kill him. And John got it as well as he wrote of it. Um, <clears throat> John 8, 58, Jesus says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, which is the God of Abraham and Moses. And then they took up stones to throw at him, and and uh, not sure why my notes say they took, <laughs> they took stones to throw at him and elsewhere. Um, <laughs> yes, because you being a mere, mere man claim to be God. Uh, after the resurrection in John 20, 28, Thomas cried out, My Lord and my God. And it's immediately following that that John gives the purpose of the book uh, that we might know that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, and so we're going to look at that. I don't want to go over all those tonight. Um, third, let's see, what are we on? We've got unity within the Godhead. We've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The Spirit is God. Uh, we're going to look at the personality of the Holy Spirit in a few weeks that uh, the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. Uh, he's not an impersonal force or an it. He can be grieved. He can be resisted. He convicts us of sin. He can be insulted, unlike electricity, a force. You can't insult electricity. 
In 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. Um, It's here that Paul is telling of Moses' encounter with God, that the glory of God so shined on Moses that he had to cover his face And so Paul explains who the Lord of the story is, who the Yahweh of the story is. It's the spirit who shares the same personal name used only of God. In Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, when Ananias and Sapphira are lying about their finances and what they're giving and giving to the church, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And later on in the verse, He says, you have not lied to men, but to God, okay? So there's one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, the Trinity. And you're gonna hear a lot of these verses again. That's good. We wanna just plow them in your head, plow them in your brain, have it familiar on the pages of your Bibles, just to know the deity uh, of Jesus, the deity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is known as the Trinity of love. The definition of God is Love in First John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God doesn't need love from us. He is love. No other religion has the right to say that God is love. Only we can believe that God is love because we believe in the Trinity and the essence of the Trinitarian community is love. In Jesus' earthly life, he goes from eternity past and enters into this earthly life. In John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Or John 14, 31, that the world may know that I love the Father as the Father gave me the commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Uh, The fifth finger here is all three people, all three persons are equally and distinctly God. All three persons are equally and distinctly God. All of them are present at Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, 16, and 17. I don't think we need to read that, but you see them distinct in that uh, Jesus is the one in the water. God the Father is the one who's doing what? Talking. And what's the Holy Spirit doing? Descending like a dove. Um, The baptismal formula shows the equality and the distinction in God. The baptismal formula. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This verse shows that all three are distinctly separate but equal. This has been known as the golden text of the Trinity. The benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, as Paul closes out the letter, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, amen. What do we see there in that verse? We see the Trinity. We see the equality and yet the distinction of each person in the Trinity. Other references that we see in scripture of the Trinity, these references show how prevalent the Trinity Uh, was taught and spoken of throughout the lives of the apostles, even when they were speaking on different themes. Uh, As Adam Poole, a friend of mine in Corvallis, uh, wrote, the doctrine of the Trinity was deeply enmeshed in the lives of the apostles. Every chapter of Ephesians references the Trinity. This is a good thing to know uh, as you're just, you know, defending the Trinity uh, because you will, especially to the cults. Uh, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, um, you read of the work of salvation, how the Father chooses, how the Son redeems, and how the Holy Spirit seals. And in chapter 2, it says in verse 17, 18, He came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through Him, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. In Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, 14 through 17, excuse me. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
So we've got the Father, we've got the Lord Jesus, um, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ might dwell in your heart through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. Are your guys' notes underlined there every time it mentions a person in the Trinity? Okay, great. Uh, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So uh, you guys get the point. Each chapter, I just love that. That's stuck with me. I've always gone back to that, that in Ephesians, every chapter uh, has the Trinity. In Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, and Ephesians 6, 10 through 11, and verse 17. In 1 Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Or Revelation 1, 4 through 5. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you in peace from him who is and was and is to come, and from the seven spirits, which speaks of the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit, who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, there are diversities of gifts. And, and by the way, where are we this Sunday? Woo-hoo. Here's where we're at. Uh, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences in ministries, but the same curios, which is a reference to Jesus. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. So it's exciting to be there. Um, by the way, um, I can't recall right where it is, but First John has a passage that when I was teaching through First John, I was like, it's incredible. This is an incredible verse. <laughs> you know, I was like, it's like, it's like, it says the Trinity here. And uh, I was so excited and I'm just writing down and then, um, Yeah, it's um, the first John. Verse twenty. Is that it? What are you reading? What do you got? The ESV there. Read it, bud. No. Yes. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Uh, I'm not sure that's. What is it? That's what. I'm sorry, Kev. It's verse 7, the one that I was thinking of, but that's cool because that has the deity of Jesus in that verse. Um, 5 7, thanks. Yeah, I remember reading this like, yeah, highlighting it, you know. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And uh, verse 7, so this is a poor, poor verse to use against the, <laughs> because um, it's not actually in the original text. It's added by scribes, probably was a, a note on the margin, and just as it was copied, it made its way in. Okay, so it's good, it's good that we know that because we've been studying all this, right? And so um, it, when we speak of the inerrancy, we speak to the extent to which it reflects the original manuscripts. And so we're able to make that note if you've got the King James or New King James. Maybe you've got NIV. I don't think it has it. And like NIV, maybe ESV doesn't have it. But uh, so anywho, um, who, can, who can do the five fingers of just to know, knowing about the Trinity here? We've got first finger was... Unity within the Trinity. Equally and distinctly God. Okay. Great job, guys. Let me see it. Page are we on here? Okay. Oh, no, you're totally right. <laughs> I forgot that I had to go like this once. There was an OSU football player that had six fingers when I first moved here. He could catch the ball really good. So I had to change it. 
but I never changed it on my outline. I apologize. Gail Halverson wants her ministry to be editing my notes, and it's much needed. So, so six fingers. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Ginger. Authority. Okay. Uh, hmm? So, um, so our six fingers, we've got unity within the Trinity. God, the father, son, God, the son is son. (laughs) Yeah, that's not right. What I just said, God, the father is son. That's not right. You guys, you should have thrown something at me, a beer bottle. Root beer bottle, for the record. God must have been <laughs> God is, okay, good. So, God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Spirit is God. They are equal and distinct. And they are equal in authority. The Father is recognized as authoritative and supreme. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. One God, the Father, in whom are all things, we for him one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. The Son is recognized as equal to the Father in value in every respect. John 5, 21 and 23, the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Uh, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Uh, The Spirit is likewise recognized as equal to the Father and the Son. Um, And you know what? Um, Yeah. So that's what I was just going to say. I want, I'm... Uh, as I'm learning, I'm editing the authority to value, okay? Because we're speaking of, really what we're speaking of here is there's subordination within the Trinity. We've been learning that, you know? So, um, yeah, authority to value and essence, okay? Oops, someone just dropped a So we are on page 11 on your notes. Mine's page 12. Main point. Yeah. Yeah. As, um, so the, 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 the sun is equal in value in essence, to the Father, and likewise the Spirit, but they have different roles, okay? They have different uh, roles within that relationship. The Spirit is recognized as equal to the Father and the Son. Let me quote, I think this is from Moody. There is, in a sense, voluntary functional subordination in terms of function and role but not in term of essence, quality, or worth. Similar to the order in marriage relationships, governmental relationships, family order, etc. Uh, there's an others-centeredness. Uh, the, the son glorifies the father. The spirit glorifies the son. In the son's ministry, he did the will of the father, not knowing even the day or the hour, um, there's equality in terms of being, but differences in roles to carry out. Uh, the Father predestines, the Son carries it out, the Spirit applies it. Um, people say that the Trinity is something that has been recently thought up. The reason was because of major persecution. People were fed to lions, run through with swords, burned at the stake, crucified. When you're persecuted and you're doing funerals all the time, just trying to live, uh, you're not able to put as much effort into writing down doctrine. And so as soon as that all calmed down in church history, uh, immediately uh, there was clear articulation of 
belief. And we have the Council of Nicaea in church history, 325 AD. Uh, Bible teachers got together and they clearly articulated the one God and three persons, and that's held ever since. And so I want to quote the Council of Nicaea here. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. And you might underline that, begotten, not made, okay? Of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made for us, Men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was made man. For our sake, he was crucified, died, and was buried. He rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and Son. Through him, the Father and Son are glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, and this is the, uh, the uh, end part that's also changed. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The unity, we talked about that in the church series. Um, we believe in the communion of the saints, the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. Uh, there was another council after this that solidified it even more. The Council of Constantinople in uh, 331. AD. Now, we don't believe in the Trinity because these early church councils said it, but because the word declares it. Uh, Augustine, in 400 to 419, he spent uh, much time spending the doctrine of the Trinity, complicated subject. Uh, he published a treatise on the Trinity, which was held up for 1,500 years. Um, all Christians believe in the Trinity. We agree on this. This is a closed handed issue. It's among the distinguishing beliefs of what it means to be a uh, Christian. St. Patrick was born in Britain. He was taken captive by the Irish. By the way, the VeggieTales did a great little story about St. Patrick. Google it, YouTube it. Uh, he was taken captive by the Irish, was a slave of the Irish. When he was finally let go, he had um, developed such a heart for the Irish people. He went home, studied, went to seminary, went back to Ireland, and for over 60 years started uh, 300 churches denying the paganism there in Ireland. And one way that he would help explain the Trinity was the three-leaf clover. So uh, it's kind of cool, but it's pretty elementary. Once you get deep into Trinity, three-leaf clover doesn't fully work. Um, conclusion here. See you, Lou. See you, Lulu. We're almost done too, guys. Okay. We love you. Um, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There's a bit of the mystery, something our mind just can't wrap around totally with the Trinity, but the Lord has revealed much of it to us. And, uh, and so the purpose is so that we might do all the words of the law. If God were so small, J.B. Phillips says, if God were so small for me to understand him, he wouldn't be big enough for me to worship him. Uh, it's a vast doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. In John 8, 24, unless you believe I am, you will perish in your sins. If you believe Jesus is the brother of Satan or Lucifer, as the Mormons believe, he will perish in your sins. If you believe Jesus is just an angel, like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, you'll perish in your sins. If you believe that he's simply a prophet, as Islam declares, you'll perish in your sins. Or just a God, as the Christian scientists believe, you will perish in your sins. The Mormons reject the Trinity. The JWs or the, the Jehovah's Witnesses deny the Trinity, uh, the deity of the Holy Spirit. They pass out tracts with weird three-headed monsters depicting the Trinity. In Second uh, John verses 9 through 11, whoever transgresses this and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Um, real quick, why does any of this matter? 
What's the big deal? There were tons of councils in the early church that met on this. And uh, is it really a big deal? Can't we all just get along? Uh, I'd like to read just in closing here. Um, the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. It's important. This teaching has implications for the very heart of the Christian faith. And you might write this in your notes. It's important, number one, because of the atonement. The atonement is at stake in this doctrine. If Jesus is merely a created being and is not fully God, then it's hard to see how he, a creature, could bear the full wrath of God against all of our sins. Could any creature, no matter how great, really save us? Any man, nonetheless. Uh, secondly, because of justification by faith alone. Okay? Without the Trinity, the justification doctrine by faith alone is threatened if we deny the full deity of the Son. This is seen today in the teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses who do not believe in justification by faith alone. If Jesus is not fully God, we would rightly doubt whether we can truly trust him to have saved us completely. Thirdly, if Jesus is not infinite God, could we really pray to him or worship him? How, who but an infinite, omniscient God could hear and respond to all of the prayers of all of God's people? And who but God himself is worthy of worship? Indeed, if Jesus is merely a creature, no matter how great it would be idolatry to worship him. And the, the New Testament commands us to worship Jesus. Fourthly, if someone teaches that Christ was a created being, but nonetheless someone who saved us, then this teaching wrongly begins to attribute credit for our salvation to a created being rather than to God himself, exalting the creature rather than the creator, something scripture never allows for. Okay, uh, let, let me see if I can summarize it for you. Right. Yeah, similar. Um, okay, I had this written out in my notes, and for some reason it didn't sink in Dropbox. Um, second, third. Uh, so third, we can't pray or worship Jesus if he's not God. He wouldn't be able, he's not omniscient or omnipresent. If he's not God, that's an attribute for God alone. Um, and so the fourth one was when you give the credit and give the glory to the creature rather than the creator, that's idolatry. So it is, is different uh, than the third and fourth point. When you give what? Worship to, or yeah. Credit. Yep, exalting the creature rather than the creator. Fifthly, I never said that. Nikki, get the recording. Fifth, the independence and personal nature of God is at stake. I'm going to say that again. The independence and personal nature of God is at stake. And let me just read to you why. Don't try to write this down. Okay, good. <laughs> if there is no Trinity, then there is no, there were no interpersonal relationships within the being of God before creation and without personal relationships, it's difficult to see how God can be genuinely personal or be without the need for a creation to relate to, okay? So God didn't create us because he was lonely, okay? There was community within the Trinity, okay? Um, sixthly, and this is the last point, the unity of the universe is at stake. The unity of the universe is at stake. Let me tell you why. Don't try to write it down. 
If there is not perfect plurality and perfect unity in God himself, then we have no basis for thinking there can be any ultimate unity among the diverse elements of the universe either. That whole long part? I'll, I'll just leave this up here. You guys can give it. But the, but the simple part is the unity of the universe is at stake. Okay. No, but I'm going to close with a quote from Herman Bavinick, who says, I have this all written down. I'll email it to you. For some reason, my notes didn't sync up, so I couldn't have it on my iPad tonight. Clearly in the doctrine of the Trinity, the heart of the Christian faith is at stake. Herman Barvenak says, Athanasius understood better than any of his contemporaries that Christianity stands or falls with the confession of the deity of Christ and of the Trinity. And he adds, in the confession of the Trinity throbs the heart of the Christian religion. Every error results from or upon deeper reflection. It may be traced to a wrong view of this doctrine. So the Trinity is huge in Christianity. And when you start looking at the cults, you see it comes down to the Trinity. It's really what it comes down to. Uh, remember the three things that I gave you uh, for, from Grudem? God is three persons. Each person is fully God. And there is one God. They're, they'll try to simplify it, try to make it more easy to comprehend and when they do that, they rob uh, some distinct quality of the Trinity that's essential. Okay, so um, it all comes down to Jesus being God, Holy Spirit being God, God the Father being God. And you can get down to that as you're sharing with people and teaching people. So uh, lots to go through. You guys did a great job. Um, okay, so Trinitarian life. Um, I want you to read that part uh, on your guys' own time and then do these two questions of applications kind of tie into this Trinitarian life. What is? Oh, it's not. What are you talking about? Oh, really? Yeah. What the? Okay, I'll give it to you. Yes. No, you guys are awesome. For some reason, didn't have the spots. Okay, Trinitarian life. Trin it's Trinitarian. Okay. The Holy Spirit resides in me. Everything I do is by the Spirit through the Son, and to the Father. Trinitarian life is loving, unless you know who love is, where love comes from, what it is. Trinitarian love is for the well-being of the other, not using and taking from the other. We see that in the Trinity. Perichoresis means choreograph. A dance of the Trinity as one God. The early church fathers used to use this word to enter into the dance with God. It's communal. Trinitarian life is communal. It's not good to be alone. We were created in the image of God, and he created us to be communal as he is communal. It's not good to be alone. Loneliness, isolation is not what God intends, but relationship, community, and friendship is what God intends. Trinitarian life is open. There's open, honest, authentic transparency among the Trinity. Like Jesus cried out to the Father, sweating great drops of blood. Uh, it's humble. There was never a day when Jesus was jealous of the praise lavished on the Father. There was never a day when the Spirit coveted Jesus' glory. But the Son said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Trinitarian life is submissive. The head of the woman in marriage is man, and the head of the man is God. If you're defiant, you're not Trinitarian. It's satanic. It's demonic. It says, I won't listen to anyone else but me. Trinitarian life is happy. No one is happier than God. 
There's joy because there's no sin, jealousy, conflict, disrespect, lying, hiding, blaming. There's just love, communication, affection, adoration, an imminent trinity. He's the most happy person who's ever existed. There is sin and falling short, but in great joy, the Son came to die, forgive us, and have, us, have the Spirit indwell us and set us apart. I believe this is from the Doctrine series by Mark Driscoll, Trinitarian Life. Are you happy? <laughs> All right. Lord, we just uh, pray that as we get knowledge and just have our head filled, Lord, we just pray that you would, um, Lord, work love out from it, Lord. We know that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And Lord, that we wouldn't be prideful about all of our knowledge about the Trinity, but Lord, we'd be worshipful. We'd just be astounded at how vast you are, Lord, and, and how you didn't hold these things as secret, Lord, but you've, you've shown us and taught us from the scriptures. Lord, we just pray that, uh, Lord, we would be loving as we minister and, and share the gospel to the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons or the Islam uh, Muslims, Lord, those around us that would even just deny Jesus as God or the Spirit as God. We just pray you'd be glorified and you just work out among us um, great salvation, Lord, as we do what Paul tells Timothy to do, to, to pay attention to doctrine. For in doing so, you'll save the souls of those around you. And so we just uh, we pray you'd do a revival in our midst, God. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so do the God section of your packet uh, for this next week, and we start Romans this week. We'll read Romans 1 through 8, I believe. Read it, keep in mind the gospel questions as you go through it, and we'll be in chapter 6 of both books next week. And I really encourage you guys to be spending those times in prayer, you know, uh, because we don't get a ton of time to be praying together here and stuff, and just... Just encourage you guys to get away and let the Spirit pour himself out upon you um, and uh, encourage your heart. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.